everyone. I am Chris Hyams, CEO of Indeed. My pronouns are he and him. And welcome to the next episode of Here to Help. At Indeed, our mission is to help people get jobs. This is what gets us out of bed in the morning and what keeps us going all day. What powers that mission is people. Here to Help is a look at how experience, strength, and hope inspires people to want to help others. Dr. Ibram X. Kendi's work has been around for more than a decade, but he rose to national prominence in 2020 when How to Be an Anti-Racist became a number one New York Times bestseller in the wake of the murder of George Floyd. He is gifted at taking the extremely complex, misunderstood, and increasingly censored history of the U.S. and making it extraordinarily accessible to a wide audience. Dr. Kendi's writing and speaking have been deeply influential for me personally, and it was an honor to share this conversation with him today. In today's conversation, we talked about the importance of the clarity in defining the words racism and anti-racism, and in viewing history through a lens of these dual and dueling forces. We talked about his constant remixing of his work and the new releases coming out June 6th, a paperback edition of How to Raise an Anti-Racist, along with a graphic novel version of Stamp from the Beginning titled Stamp from the Beginning, A Graphic History of Racist Ideas in America. I asked him about the dangers of AI to marginalized people, and Dr. Kendi provided a unique perspective on how the word artificial itself skews our perspective on the role of humans in creating these systems. We also looked ahead to the future and how the BU Center for Anti-Racist Research is building a strategy to help create an anti-racist world. This was one of the most inspiring conversations I've ever had, and I'm excited to share it with all of you today. Dr. Kendi, thank you so much for joining me today. Of course. Thank you for having me. You have spent much of your time and energy trying to help people understand or maybe untangle their misunderstanding of the word racism and by corollary, anti-racism. And I'd like to start off maybe with some definitions in the intro to how to be an anti-racist. You write, there is no in-between safe space of not racist. The claim of not racist neutrality is a mask for racism. Racist is not a pejorative. It is not the equivalent of a slur. It is descriptive. And the only way to undo racism is to consistently identify and describe it and then dismantle it. Can you please talk a bit about the definitions of racism and anti-racism and why these definitions are so important? I think it's first important for us to, to start with understanding that we have racial disparities in the United States, like, like in other countries, which is to say that, let's say, Black people are disproportionately likely to be impoverished or incarcerated or killed by police or dying of heart disease and cancer. And, and so when you, when you start out with just acknowledging those basic facts that, of course, have been proven time and again by, by statistics, the question becomes, why? And so there are racist ideas that suggest that a particular racial group is superior or inferior the opposite of that 
or ideas that suggest that the racial groups are equals. And then there are policies that are leading to racial disparities that I would define as racist. And then there are policies that are leading to equity uh, between groups, which I would define as anti-racist. And so going back to the, to the original question of racism, I define racism as a powerful collection of, of, of policies that are leading to racial inequities and disparities and are substantiated by ideas of racial hierarchy and anti-racism as the very opposite of that, which is a, a powerful collection of, of policies that are leading to racial equity and are substantiated by ideas of racial equality. In the preface to the paperback edition of Stamped from the Beginning, you, you make a case that runs counter to more popular narratives around our racial history. And I'll just read a section here. You, you say, as I carefully studied America's racial past, I did not see a singular historical force arriving at a post-racial America. I did not see a singular historical force becoming more covert and implicit over time. I did not see a singular historical force taking steps forward and backward on race. I saw two distinct historical forces. I saw a dual and dueling history of racial progress and the simultaneous progression of racism. I saw the anti-racist force of equality and the racist force of inequality marching forward, progressing in rhetoric, in tactics, in policies. This uh, idea was a revelation when I first read it. Can you talk a little bit, please, about these dual and dueling forces? Sure. Well, let me talk about them through an, an example today. So one of the effects of, of racist policies historically has been to really prevent uh, particularly uh, people of color from getting into let's say, elected office. Currently, you, you have some of the most diverse uh, bodies of, of legislatures in history in certain places. At the same time, that is happening, which is the result of, of, of decades, if not centuries, of, of, of activism to make our democracy, a multiracial democracy real, there's also simultaneously efforts to make it harder for certain people, namely people of color, to vote. And with these highly sophisticated voter suppression techniques that are much more sophisticated than they were a century ago. So both of this is happening at the same time. And that's sort of indicative of, of American history. And, and so neither, that, that does not correlate with this notion that we've had steady and continuous progress. So after the Civil War, at the same time, we had this, um, you know, Black people were, particularly Black men were able to vote. They were being elected into office. Black people were building colleges at the same time, you had the, the emergence of what came known as the convict lease system, which was the most one of the most sophisticated racist um, labor systems in American history. So I think that this is how we sort of hold the complexity that we that we are seeing in our own moment and we've seen across history. So I want to talk uh, 
a bit about your your writing in particular. Your work is centered on this extremely complex, misunderstood, and and now increasingly censored history in the U.S. And over the past few years, you have essentially remixed your work for different audiences. You followed up how to be an anti-racist with how to be a young anti-racist, how to raise an anti-racist, and the children's book, Anti-Racist Baby. Stamped from the beginning was followed by Stamped Racism, Anti-Racism, and You, and Stamped for Kids, both collaborations with young adult writer Jason Reynolds. And next week, on June 6th, you are releasing a paperback edition of How to Raise an Anti-Racist, along with the graphic novel version of Stamped titled Stamped from the Beginning, A Graphic History of Racist Ideas in America. Can you talk a little bit about these new releases and how these iterations or evolutions of your work help make your ideas more accessible to a broader audience? I believe that it is it is important for, for those of us who are scholars, who, who spend our time researching on on a topic as complex uh, as as the history of racism or even what it means to be to be anti-racist to to not keep our research findings uh to keep our our literature uh behind sort of paywalls of journals or only in scholarly circles and racism is is a problem that is affecting us all it's a problem that's affecting nations and, and it's a problem that I think we we all need to understand. And so, and 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 when I say all, not just adults, even have young people. There, there are young people right now who are coming home from school, uh, saying uh, something like uh, a five-year-old black boy saying to his mother, "I don't like my hair; it's ugly." And 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 so a parent may not know how to respond, you know, to that. And and so I, I just think it's important. For us all to have an understanding of, of 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 racist ideas and even more importantly racist policies, you know, not just adults but but even children. But in order to do that, we have to meet people where they are. I know that I'm not necessarily uh, the most talented writer for children, and there are people who who of course have have made a living in terms of writing great books for. For children, so why not partner with these, you know, incredible creators like Nick Stone and and, and Jason Reynolds and, you know, and others, or even now with, with Joel Christian Gill, who's, you know, an award-winning cartoonist. And because there are young people and older people who may not read a 500-page stamp from the beginning, but they may they may be digging comics, and and this is a way for them to learn the history. For us at Indeed, our mission is to help people get jobs. More than 300 million people around the world come to Indeed every month. And from our vantage point, we see very clearly the bias and barriers that exist in employment. Can you talk about some of the ways that racism shows up in the world of work? Sure. I think there are a number of different ways, but one way I will will mention is how we determine qualifications. I, I never for, for I remember having a conversation with a group of of managers actually at a university. So they were really department chairs who 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 were were talking to me about desiring to diversify their their faculty and couldn't figure out why that hadn't happened because it was something that they were committed to. And so I encouraged them to really start reflecting on their their policies and practices, written and unwritten, 
And and at one point, uh, someone who actually hadn't spoken up uh, said that, well, you know, at this college, we tend to recruit PhD students from the same five universities. And as I reflect on the racial makeup of those uh, graduate programs, they're probably not that diverse. So then this person went on to say how the this the, this body of, of of hiring managers artificially created a a pool that was not diverse and 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 now they began to understand how and why they did that and then they started to reflect why is it that we only consider or we primarily consider uh students qualified or potential um, those who are seeking jobs qualified from these five institutions and and it, it allowed them, and I just stepped back as they really talked about, yeah. for them to really reflect on on how they came to that, to that. And so I, I think something as simple as how we're qualifying people, what we're determining as qualifications, can be highly racialized in ways that people don't realize. Last month uh, on this podcast, I was joined by Dr. Safia Noble. Uh, UCLA professor and author of Algorithms of Oppression, How Search Engines Reinforce Racism. And so clearly today, technology data and especially AI is really front and center in everyone's mind. Can you talk about what you see as some of the dangers of AI for marginalized people and what tech companies like Indeed should be doing to help combat these threats? Well, I, I see the greatest danger as the supposition that AI is actually artificial and, and that humans did not create AI. And humans have not baked, as studies shown, like Sophia's studies and others, humans haven't baked their own racist and sexist and, and ethnocentric ideas into algorithms, you know, into uh, the AI that they create. Because when when we, if we as human beings say that artificial intelligence is fundamentally artificial. And so therefore, if it's leading to or creating these through its through through its work, these these disparities, then it can't be uh, because of bias, because AI can't have bias, then it then it'll become a new way to exclude people uh, because of, of their race that's defensible. And I don't want that to happen. If you like this interview and want to hear more, hit subscribe. Catch up on any Here to Help episodes you might have missed, like my conversation with Panty Bliss, and get new ones delivered directly to you. More with Dr. Ibram X. Kendi after this break. I'd love to talk about some of your work outside of your writing, in addition to your writing and speaking in 2020. You founded the Center for Anti-Racist Research at Boston University. The stated mission is to build an anti-racist society that ensures racial equity and social justice. Can you tell us about the work of the center and why an academic research center is vital to this fight to create an anti-racist world? So our center is, 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 is founded based on a theory of change that recognizes that historically the way in which we actually have achieved racial progress has typically been as a result of 
scholars and other researchers identifying injustices and inequities and, and the policies and practices behind them, you know, policy experts uh, creating uh, research-based uh, corrective policies that have the, the, the capacity to reduce those inequities, uh, creating, or I should say, shifting the narrative away from this notion that the problem are people of color or any group of people and actually are those policies and, and then new, more anti-racist policies are the solution and then advocacy campaigns to get those policies instituted. So we've built our center based on that theory of change. And, and that's why we have four offices, a research policy narrative, an advocacy office, each of which are engaged in projects um, collectively and independently you know that that advances really uh, this collective mission of of seeking to build an equitable uh, society because we realize we're we're going to need not just research even though that's the foundation of everything we do but we're going to need policy change and narrative change and 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 supporting uh, advocacy groups uh, through research to do their work. One of the particular initiatives uh, at CAR, the Evidence Equity Project, which is devoted to eliminating racist evidentiary policies and practices and promoting fairness and justice in courtrooms across the country. In full disclosure, my wife, Lizzie Burr, and I were very honored to provide the establishing gift for the Evidence Equity Project last year. Can you talk a little bit about the vision for this initiative and the work underway? Sure. Of course, I would like to thank you for that for that gift. And I, I think first and foremost, this this specific projects uh, comes out of the work of, of one of our our faculty members, one of our founding faculty members, Jasmine Gonzalez Rose, who's a a professor of law. And uh, of course, through her work uh, in particular, uh, there's this recognition, uh, all the different ways, in which uh, evidence and, 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 and the ways in which evidence is presented, the ways in which evidence uh, is, is, is sort of um, uh, collected, the ways in which evidence uh, is, is defended has all sorts of um, impacts on the way cases are tried. And, and, and one of the ways in which uh, we realized that we could make an intervention would be through providing mechanisms for uh, those who are bringing racial justice cases to have greater access to uh, highly specialized uh, um, uh, expert uh, witnesses. So oftentimes, uh, the, the 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 companies or even the the lawyers that are bringing uh, these cases don't have access to to highly talented and highly specialized uh, expert witnesses who can present uh, evidence that actually uh, could create a more equitable outcome. They're typically very expensive. They're hard to find. They're hard to train. So that's one of the things we've been doing with this seeking to build with the evidence equity project is we're building an affiliates program of, of scholars who study racism and, and we're really seeking to train and organize uh, scholars so that they could provide expert uh, testimony and, and evidence that could uh, lead to uh, more favorable and more just outcomes which could 
could have a reverberating effect on society. In the spirit of these uh, dual and dueling forces that we were talking about, the efforts from you and other writers to help more people understand racism have been met with a, a frenzy of counter-effort. Uh, in Texas, where Indeed is based, uh, recently had a law passed prohibiting critical race theory, whatever that means, in the classroom. Uh, just last week, Texas passed a ban on DEI offices in public colleges and universities. Last month, the Florida school removed Amanda Gorman's inaugural poem, The Hill We Climb, from elementary school library shelves. What is your strategy for competing in what feels like this arms race of ideas? We, I think as a center and, and those of us who are engaged in this work, have, have really tried to be razor focused on the, the greater argument that is being had in society. And, and, and that greater sort of more macro argument is about what is the problem. And after the murder of George Floyd, an unprecedented number of Americans came to recognize the problem as racism. But almost from the beginning of those demonstrations of people reading and trying to understand racism, from people contributing to, to anti-racist organizations, there emerged an effort to say, no, actually, the problem are those people who are saying the problem is racism. And, and there has been a pretty significant, uh, as you described, movement uh, to, to make that case. And so I, I'm, I'm mentioning that, uh, Chris, because it, it, is, it is important for us to, to respond to the specificities of, of book banning, to the specificities of attacks on DEI programs, to the specificities of, uh, you know, attacks on specific organizations or, or particular writers. But what we've tried to do is, is, is not miss those trees for the larger forest and really continue to, to, to demonstrate to the American people that the problem is racism. And here's how and here's why. Well, as we're coming, unfortunately, to the end of our time here, and you know, with all of my guests, I'd ask the same final question, which is, in spite of all that we've been through in the past few years, what leaves you with some hope for the future? In, in your case, your final words at the end of how to be an anti-racist might offer some clues. So I'd like to read this quickly and then, and then ask you what gives you hope today. Um, you write, there is nothing I see in our world today, in our history, giving me hope that one day anti-racists will win the fight, that one day the flag of anti-racism will fly over a world of equity. What gives me hope is a simple truism. Once we lose hope, we are guaranteed to lose. But if we ignore the odds and fight to create an anti-racist world, then we give humanity a chance to one day survive, a chance to live in communion, a chance to be forever free. So what would you say does give you hope today? What gives me hope is indeed the, the belief that in order to bring about change, we, we, we have to believe it's possible. I mean, I think all the, the great creators and inventors and, 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 and leaders in history uh, saw about beyond the here and the now and, and imagined something that at the time was considered to be impossible. 
and or that no one could even conceive of. And, and so I, I just think it is important for us to be clear about this situation and society and the challenges we're in, but also to, to never lose sight of the possibilities that we can transform it. And indeed, I also, as an historian, receive hope from history, from those times in history when the impossible happened, when, you know, there was a time in this nation's history, in, in, the, in the history of the United States, where people believed that slavery would chattel slavery would would was permanent would 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 last forever and you know but those who were enslaved and and those who were free and fighting for the end of slavery believed uh, something different they believed that that they could abolish uh, slavery i mean there was a there was a time which uh, people believed that women could never be allowed to vote uh, or that there would never be anything but a, a white male president, or uh, that the the idea uh, that we could truly have a multiracial, multicultural democracy whereby we're respecting and valuing and being enhanced uh, by by differences that that's just impossible. But I, I just think it's possible, and I, and I just think human beings. If there's something that's unique about us, it's that ability to dream and imagine and, and hope for, for what's not in, in the here and the now. And that's what I'm never going to stop doing. Dr. Ibram X. Kendi, thank you so much for your time today. And thank you for everything that you are doing to help bring about this vision for a more free and equal world. Of course, Chris. And, and thank you so much for, for your work as well and for supporting us. Here to Help is a production of Indeed. Today's episode was produced by Aidan McLaughlin, Ivan Fallon, and David Hardstein, Shelby Haddon, and the Blue Suitcase Productions team in Austin, Texas, with tactical support from Brent Nordling and Jeffrey Narsted. Our theme music was composed by Noah Galambos and Noah Nelson. Thanks for listening to Here to Help. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and download the podcast to stay up to date with the latest episodes. Until next time. Thank you.